Amen. Thank you, worship team. Well, if you would remain standing, we've come. It's not Palm Sunday, I'm going to warn you. It's not Palm Sunday, but we are coming to a text that's normally read on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry in John chapter 12. And this is a good text, not just for Palm Sunday, but any Sunday of the year. So we're going to be in verses 12 to 26, John 12, 12 to 26. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they went and they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was because they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. For where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. You may sit down and let's pray together as we seek to understand and apply God's holy word. Father in heaven, we do long for you to be magnified today. Help us to see Jesus on full display this morning. We ask that you would do that by the immeasurable power of the Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts to receive your word to us, to be moved by you, to understand what it means to follow you, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would recalibrate our hearts so that they're tuned to you. So we pray that in the mighty and holy and righteous name of your son Jesus, amen. Well, we live in a world that tells us life is all about us. It's all about our happiness, our fulfillment, meeting our desires. A picture of this is we live in a world that celebrates walk-up music. If you don't know what walk-up music is, probably because you haven't been to a baseball game recently. But in a baseball game, when the batter is coming up to the plate, he has chosen his favorite song to be played. And it's quite interesting what some of these guys choose as they come up 
to bat. But the point of walk-up music is all about this batter. It's all about him, that he might be comfortable, that his favorite song is blaring on the speakers so that he can get ready to do his thing. And in this world that we live in, this world uh, about us, this world that says it's all about us, we can sometimes be deceived into thinking Jesus is our spiritual walk-up music, that he exists for our pleasure, that he, it's all about how he makes us feel, about how he meets our expectations. We can wrongly think that following Jesus is all about us. But Jesus will not allow us to live in that fantasy world. In today's passage, he will show us this main truth, that his glory is far different and far greater, yet far different than the world's glory. He's gonna, let me say that again. Jesus will show us that his glory is far better, but far different than the world's glory. And as we go through the story, the following two truths will help us drive home this point. The first truth is this. Remember that Jesus will be glorified no matter what. We see that in verses 16 all the way to 22. Remember that Jesus will be glorified no matter what. And the second truth is that we must embrace Jesus' surprising path to glory. We're going to see that in verses 23 to 26. So let's explore that first truth, which is that we must remember that Jesus will be glorified no matter what. As John sets the scene here, in case you haven't been with us, we've got to kind of picture this. We've got to enter into the scene. You can feel the momentum for Jesus building. He has just raised the man from the dead. His popularity is at an all-time high. Jerusalem is swelling with people because the Passover feast is upon them. And during the Passover, some scholars would say this town of 100,000 people could swell to as many as 2 million or more people. So there is tons of people crowding in Jerusalem. They're clamoring to hear about this man, Jesus. They want to see him. They want to see this man who has raised someone from the dead. You can feel the excitement in the air. There's a buzz to the crowd. And in that moment, it's a monumental moment. We can't underestimate the magnitude of what is happening here. But even though this is one of the most monumental moments in the history of the world, everyone there, with the exception of Jesus, doesn't really understand what is really going on. It's not monumental for the reasons they think. And then this first section, we can observe four groups of people that don't quite get it but people through whom Jesus is still glorified. The first group is the large crowd, starting in verse 12. So listen to what it says there. John says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. See, this crowd had gathered together like some of our modern political rallies. They were kind of in a frenzy. They're waving palm branches, which at that time had political overtones, political overtones of victory. They were thinking that Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem 
as the Messiah, the political liberator. They were gonna have freedom from the Romans. And so they yell out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. This was a common refrain in these kind of festivals where they would yell out Hosanna, which means save us, we pray. And so they come out to Jesus. They think he is a military king that is coming to conquer, and they are excited. Well, we learn more about the crowd and their motives for gathering Jesus if we skip ahead a little bit to verse 17. It says that the crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. They continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd, this is the larger crowd now, went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So we see that this crowd doesn't have the purest of motives. They have heard about from this smaller crowd who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They had heard what had happened and they want to see this man, this kind of man with this power. That's why they had gone out. That's why they're waving the palm branches. They think he is the liberator of Israel. And the irony is, is that while the crowd didn't fully understand what they were doing, it was the right response. They were doing the right thing. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the King of Israel. He was fully deserving of all the pomp and circumstance, the triumphal entry and the worship and the praise and the palm branches. He was worth it all. They just didn't realize why he was worth it all at the moment. And with, at this moment, with all the excitement about Jesus, it doesn't seem possible that in just a few days, this same crowd that's shouting Hosanna will in a few days shout crucify him. But perhaps it does make a little more sense when we realize they didn't understand who the Messiah was and what he had come to do. Well, the next group that doesn't understand what's happening are Jesus' disciples. Listen to verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. It says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So in the moment, the disciples were likely ecstatic. They were really excited about what was going on. They knew their master. They had seen him do all these miracles. They wanted him to be glorified in this way. They were thinking, yes, Jesus, you're doing it. But they didn't understand fully what God was doing in that moment. How he was glorifying Jesus would only become apparent to them after Jesus died and rose again. And then the Holy Spirit would bring these things to their minds. But Jesus fully understood the moment. And so he found a donkey to ride into Jerusalem in order to fulfill the scripture from Zechariah 9. You know, a donkey was not the kind of animal that a conquering king would enter into a city with. They would come on a war horse, showing might and power. Not a, not a donkey. A donkey was a humble animal. A donkey, a donkey symbolized peace in this culture. So Jesus came not on the war horse, he came on a donkey which was foreshadowing the kind of king that he was. 
But even though the disciples don't get it in the moment, look how Jesus is being glorified. He is fulfilling scripture, those things that were prophesied about him hundreds if not thousands of years before. John says the disciples eventually realized that these scriptures were written about him. Just as, friends, all scripture is written about Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament, Jesus said back in Luke 24, he said all of these things in the Psalms and the prophets and the law, it's all written about me. They didn't realize that it was about Christ. And even though it's not immediately obvious to the disciples, Jesus is being glorified through scripture. It was for our benefit, for those of us who are reading and would read John's gospel in the years to come. Well, next we come to the third group that misunderstands what's going on, but who are still glorifying Jesus, and that's the Pharisees. You gotta love Jesus just glorifying himself through these people who hate him. Listen to verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees have been a mad, angry group for a while now. As we were going through John's gospel, you've seen that. They are furious that they are losing their grip on power. They've tried everything. They've said, hey, if you believe in Jesus, you'll be kicked out of the synagogue. They've plotted to kill Jesus in so many different ways, and it's been unsuccessful. And now they're saying to one another, like, look, the whole world's going after him. We've, we've lost And while they were speaking in superlatives, like hyperbolically, they were saying, hey, there's a large crowd here in Jerusalem going after Jesus. The world is going after him. They didn't realize what God was really doing. They didn't know how much that statement was true, that yes, not only this crowd in Jerusalem, but the entire world would go after this king because this king came to save the world, to die for the sins of of the world. And so again, John is highlighting this irony that Jesus is being glorified even through these men who hate Jesus. Well, then we come to the fourth group in this passage that doesn't quite understand, and that is the Greeks, starting in verse 20. I'll read it out there. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So who are these Greeks? Well, well, these Greeks were likely God-fearing Gentiles, people of the Greek-speaking culture that had traveled to Jerusalem to worship God. They could only go into the court of the Gentiles. There was a huge divide, if you remember, between Gentiles and Jews at that time. They don't even know how they can get to this great Jewish Messiah or whoever he is, they, but they want to see him. They want to not just see him go by on the donkey. When they say they want to see him, they want to sit with him. They want to talk with him, but they don't know how to do so, so they pick the guy who seems most likely Philip. He, he's got a Greek-speaking name, He's from a town in Bethsaida that is in a Gentile area. They're thinking, well, maybe this guy can get us to Jesus. Philip doesn't know what to do, though. And so he goes and asks Andrew. He doesn't know how Jesus can respond to this. Andrew gives the okay, and they run together and tell Jesus. 
Well, neither the disciples nor these Greeks or Gentiles yet understand that Jesus has come to earth to save them as well as the Jews. They're fascinated by Jesus. They want to learn more about Jesus, but they don't know just how much they need him. They don't know just how much Jesus is going to be glorified through saving them. And so the irony that John highlights here is that the Greeks' response is correct. Wanting to see Jesus was correct because his mission was for the entire world, including them. And so we've got these four groups. We've got the crowd, we've got the disciples, we've got the Pharisees, we've got the Greeks, and they all had some misunderstanding of what was going on in that moment as Jesus entered Jerusalem. And yet God was unfolding his plan through them. He was using even their misunderstanding to glorify his son, Jesus. And this reality of this first truth that Jesus will be glorified no matter what should encourage us today. It should encourage us because even if we don't understand what God is doing in this world, even if it seems like evil is winning, even if it seems like God is taking us through something we don't get, we know that God is always working to accomplish his purposes. It should encourage us to know that nothing can thwart God's salvation plan through Jesus. No person, no leader, no enemies, no government, nothing can thwart the plan of God through Jesus. But these snapshots of those who misunderstood should also serve as a warning to us because they highlight that it's possible to be fascinated with Jesus, to even want to be around Jesus, to have a hearing with Jesus, feel drawn to Jesus, and still not understand what it means to follow him. We can get caught up with the hype and miss the substance about who Jesus is, because Jesus' goal is not to draw just a large crowd, nor is it merely to be popular and influential which we're gonna see as the story continues. So remember that Jesus will be glorified no matter what. The next truth we come to is found in verses 23 and 26, and that it's we must embrace Jesus' surprising path to glory. So in the context of this frenzied crowd and the Gentiles saying, hey, Philip, Andrew, could we go see Jesus? Jesus doesn't directly answer the disciples' question. In fact, this inquiry maybe tips them off at the time that's happening, the the moment that has now come to fruition. Listen to verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If you remember in John, throughout John's gospel, we've learned that the hour has not yet come. We heard that first in chapter two when, when he told his mother at the wedding, woman, my hour has not yet come. We learned it in chapter seven and again in chapter eight when people were trying to arrest him. They were unsuccessful because John says his hour had not yet come. But now we come to a huge turn in the story. This is a big moment in John's gospel because he says, Jesus says, the hour has now come. 
Remember, Jesus always operates to the perfect timing of God the Father. And now the Father has said, now is the time. It's the time for Jesus to be glorified. But Jesus' glory is far different than that of the world. The crowd is expecting a show of strength. They're expecting a show of power, military might. But Jesus bursts their bubble by giving them a picture of what his glory will look like, what this is gonna look like by using a familiar farming illustration in verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it must It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what is Jesus doing here? He's saying that his glorification is not gonna come by riding in and sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. It's gonna come through his death. Just like a grain of wheat cannot bear fruit unless it leaves its stalk and dies, so Jesus is saying he must die in order to bear the most fruit. And it begs the question, well, how is Jesus glorified in his death? Well, he's glorified in his death because it's the only way that salvation would come to the world. It's the only way that God would break down the barrier that exists between human beings and himself. It's the only way that our sins could be paid for that guilty human beings could enter the presence of God. Well, there's unspeakable glory in the horrible suffering that Jesus went through on the cross. But this weed analogy is not merely an illustration about Jesus, because if we want to follow him, he says that we must follow a similar path, a path of death, of death to ourself. So he elaborates on what it looks like in verse 25. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So here Jesus lays out two options for how we can live our lives, and he gives the consequences of each option. And we've got to pay attention very closely. You might have been like tuning out everything I've said so far, but we've got to pay attention very closely to what Jesus is saying here. Because he is giving the exact opposite message that you receive 24 hours a day from this world. Got to pay attention. What does he say? Option number one of how you can live your life. It's loving your life. This is the way of the world. This is the way that the world tells us to live. If you love your life, Jesus says, that is if you treasure the things of this world, money and comfort and pleasure and indulging in your own sinful passions and pleasures. In other words, if you live for yourself and not for God, if you're on the throne of your life, if you love your life, that's what he's saying when he says if you love your life, here's the consequence. You're gonna lose your life. You are losing your life. The word there for lose is frequently translated in John's gospel as destroy or perish. If you love your life, if you're loving your life in this way, if you're living for yourself, you're destroying your life. You're destroying your life now and for all eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he gives us option number two, which again, in context, is, it's a bit surprising. 
Number two, option number two, hate your life. So Jesus says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it or guard it for eternal life. Now we need to kind of unpack that a little bit. Like what does it mean to hate your life? This isn't like a teenager who's really bored and be like, I hate my life. It's not what Jesus is talking about. This is not some glorification of being sad or depressed or like not being able to have any fun in life. That's not what hating your life is about. In fact, Jesus said that the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. That he came that we might have life and have it abundantly, both this in this life and the life to come. So it's not about just being sad all the time. So what does it mean to hate your life? Well, borrowing from what Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels in Luke chapter nine, hating your life is denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus. Hating your life means renouncing your rights, admitting that you are spiritually bankrupt and following Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. It means not valuing your safety and comfort so much that you won't take risks for God. It means not storing up your treasure here on earth as if this life is all that there is. It means being okay with being misunderstood or mistreated for Jesus' sake. That might happen in your job. That might happen in your family. That could happen in all different ways. It's longing for Jesus' glory above your own. It's being okay with being passed by, with not being noticed, being a servant. So what does this look like, though, in real life? I'll give you three snapshots, different stages of life. Maybe you can identify with each one. Hating your life looks like a college student that I knew who was very bright some years ago, and he had some full-ride offers to law school. And instead of going to law school, he felt God was calling him to serve in the inner city of Philadelphia at a church, in a ministry. And so he took a year away from the prime years of his life and ability to study to go and get paid nothing to serve these children. Hating your life looks like a family who is, was done having kids, a family I know. They were done having kids, but God had pricked their conscience, he had pricked their heart towards reaching out to kids who were in need. And through, through an organization called Safe Families, they started welcoming endangered kids into their lives. They could have been past that stage of babies and drama, but they hated their life in the sense that Jesus is talking about. They hated their life so that they gave up their rights so that they would welcome in the least of these. It looks like a family that I know that were empty nesters. All their kids had grown up. This was the time that the world says, you gotta go travel, you gotta enjoy life. But God called them to adopt two boys from a developing world country. And I tell you what, that was not an easy experience. There was a ton of challenges. But they followed their master and what he was calling them to do. And so friends, here Jesus is giving us a picture when he's saying hating your life, that's what you gotta do. It's a picture of what it means to follow him. And it's not just for the super spiritual. This isn't just for like the Elizabeth Elliots of the world. I'm reading a biography on her. She's an amazing woman. Her husband was killed in Ecuador and she stayed. Instead of going back to America, she stayed 
and wanted to reach the very people who killed her husband. It's not just for them. It's also for everyday people like me and you following Jesus. It's a call to all of us who want to follow him. It's a complete surrender of our lives. It's a surrender of our rights. It's a denial of ourself. It's our heart's expression to receive a willingness to receive a new identity, a one that is given to us by Jesus to receive his righteousness. And so the most important question that you could answer today, that I could answer today is this, have you done this? Have you taken that step to say, yes, I hate my life? Not in the sense that we think of it, but in the sense that Jesus thinks of it. Yes, I renounce my rights, and Jesus, I'm gonna follow you. Have you done that? Or do you still love your life? Are you holding on to your rights? Are you thinking that this world is all about you, all about your pleasure, your comfort, your retirement? your life. Now don't get me wrong, there's some temporary pleasure in loving your life. That pleasure could last even decades, up until the point when you die, or else no one would do it, quite frankly. There wasn't pleasure in loving your life, but it is temporary, and the cost is so great. It means you are gonna destroy your life for all eternity. So if you have never made that surrender to Jesus, if you've never won, at one point said, okay, I'm not gonna have myself on my throne, now I want Jesus on the throne, if you've never done that, let today be the day that you trust in Jesus Christ. He doesn't wanna just be gawked at. He doesn't just wanna be kind of marveled at. He is our king. And so if you wanna make him your king today because he has served you by dying for you and he has paid for your sins, you can do that and receive life. Do that today. Many of us today are followers of Christ. We have made that surrender at some point in our life. But if that's you, you also know the fight that is there, the daily fight to renegotiate the terms of your surrender. Yeah, you've surrendered, but the flesh always wants to renegotiate those terms. Well, yeah, but I can just indulge in this or that. It's, it's not that bad. Peter describes this battle in 1 Peter 2. He says it's our sinful passions waging war against our souls. Do you know that battle, Christian? Do you know that battle of surrendering to Jesus but then renegotiating and wanting to go back to that old life? Well, that's why we need to remember what Jesus says about what it means to live as a Christian in verse 26. So he says this, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here we get another picture of what it means to hate your life. What does it look like to hate your life? Well, according to Jesus, it means serving him. How do you serve Jesus? He says it right here, by following him. How do you follow Jesus? Well, the best way you can follow Jesus, the best work you can do is to believe in him wholeheartedly. Put your full hope and trust in Jesus, that your identity is placed in him, that he's done everything for you. That's the, that's the greatest work you can do. But it also means, when you've done that, obeying his commands. 
the commands in his word, by trusting in his ways, trusting in the plans that he has for you, trusting in his sovereign hand over your life. Jesus says if you're serving him, you will be where he is. Well, where is Jesus? In the context, he's going down the path of suffering. He's going to the cross. He's about to lose his life for the sake of others. So to be where Jesus is means that you are willing to serve faithfully no matter what that's gonna cost you, even if it costs you your very life. You may be thinking, well, Jesus, (laughs) you know, that sounds hard. That sounds like uncomfortable. And the answer is yes. Yeah, death to self is hard. Any kind of death is hard. It is uncomfortable. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7 that the way is hard, the path is narrow that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Few find it, but it's all worth it. Oh, how gloriously worth it it all is. Every sacrifice that you make for Christ pales in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to you as you do so. It's the great exchange. You give up everything. You give up your life for Jesus and he gives you himself. He gives you so much more than you could ever imagine. Last week's passage reminded us about the treasure of Jesus, how no price is too great to pay, to give to Jesus, not even our own lives. Do you believe that? Do you, do you really believe that? Or is that a theoretical kind of position in your head? Do you really believe giving up everything is worth it? Giving up everything for Jesus. Well, look how the passage ends in verse 26. Look at the prize that we can look to. For the one who hates his life, the one who serves Jesus, look what Jesus says. The Father will honor that person. There it is. We all want glory of some kind. We're all seeking out their comfort or fame or being noticed or being influential. You want any of that stuff? You want glory? You want honor? You want prestige? How about being honored by the creator of the world? You know, in a few weeks uh, in college football, which I love following college football, there's going to be a Heisman Trophy. Uh, it's actually in November. But it's a big, prestigious honor. All these people gather around, they get this big trophy, which really, who cares? Like, you're gonna put it somewhere and someone's gonna forget that you even won this thing. How much greater, when you follow Jesus, when you serve him, when you surrender your life to him, the Father will honor you. That's so much better than winning a Heisman Trophy. That's so much better than getting any kind of earthly accolades that you could ever imagine. The Father will honor you as you trust in his son, Jesus. There's no more honor than that. And that, uh, this, my friends, is where the rubber meets the road in following Jesus. I love what the great Matthew Henry said so piercingly about Jesus. He said, Jesus did not come into the world to be a show for us to gaze at, but a king to be ruled by And I want you to honestly ask that question this morning. In your heart, in your heart of hearts, are you treating Jesus as a show to be gazed at? 
Are you kind of like that crowd who is kind of like cheering him on and sort of evaluating him, kind of taking whatever you want to believe about Jesus? Are you taking some of his commands and then some of them it's like, ah, that's a little hard, Jesus. I'm gonna go do my own thing here. Or is he a king to be obeyed? Ask yourself, whose glory am I seeking? Is it, is it mine is it, or is it the glory of Jesus? How do you know whose glory you are seeking? You can know it by just looking at your life. Do you love your life as Jesus defines it here? Is it all about you? Is life all about you? Or do you hate it? Is it all about Christ? Have you given up your rights? Is it all about Christ? Well, I want to acknowledge again that this is not a simple yes or no answer. I get that. It's something that we must answer on a day-to-day basis. That's why Jesus said if we should come after him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and daily, daily follow him. There's a daily choice that we must make as believers in the Lord Jesus of who is going to be our master. Who's going to be our master today? And perhaps today you have been drifting maybe for days, maybe for months, maybe for years as a Christian. You have been drifting. Wrongly say, well, he's just, he's so gracious, he'll forgive everything I'm doing that is contrary to his will. Hear the Lord calling you back today, calling you back to the narrow road to, to, to follow him and obey him as king, to confess your sins before him. Ask him today to show you areas of your life that you need to give under his control. Maybe they're no longer under his control. Maybe they've never been under his control. And you just kind of say, well, yeah, it's those things, Lord. Those are off limits. If we follow Jesus, there's nothing off limits in our life. We've surrendered it all to him. So what are those things you need to confess before him and lay at his feet? As we close this morning, I want us to reflect upon the glory of Jesus. Yes, all that happened to him as he rode into Jerusalem, that was all well-deserved. That was right and good. But the people didn't understand what they were doing. They didn't understand that Jesus' glory is so far greater and so far different than the glory of this world, that his glory would come through suffering Sacrifice and ultimately through his death on a cross and his resurrection from the dead. But there will be a day in the future where the misunderstanding about Jesus will be gone. It's a second Palm Sunday, if you will. John writes about it in Revelation chapter seven. He says this, in start, starting in verse nine. He says, after this, I looked And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and notice, with palm branches in their hands. It's the second Palm Sunday. And crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And friends, on that day, we will be convinced beyond a shadow of doubt that every sacrifice made for Jesus was so worth it, so worth it. On that day, we will see that Jesus always tells us the truth. 
That if you love your life here on earth, it will be destroyed. That if you hate your life here on earth, you will preserve it for eternal life. Jesus' glory is far better. It's far different than the glory of this world. So don't fall captive to the hype of this world. Don't fall captive to its lies. Don't make earthly glory or the trappings of comforts of this world your top priority. Instead, embrace Jesus' surprising path to glory, which is the path of self-denial and sacrifice. When you do that, you will receive honor from God the Father, and you will benefit for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are humbled and challenged by this word from you. Because if we're honest, those of us who have trusted in you, it is so easy to drift. It is so easy to be a bystander and and kind of think we can pick and choose what it means to follow you. So Lord, help us to surrender afresh those areas of our lives that have not come under you. Lord, we're encouraged that even when we don't know everything, that you are still at work glorifying yourself. And as we came to know you for the first time, we didn't know everything, but we knew enough that you are the savior of this world. And so I pray, Lord, if there is someone here today who hasn't yet trusted you, still has a lot of questions, still has some misunderstandings, I pray that they would trust in you today. They would put their life and surrender it to you. So Lord, do a mighty work among us. Change us into people that are passionate for you, that are willing to go with you and to follow you, even if it costs us our lives. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.